Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is Season 2, Episode 64, Two Empresses. When we left our last episode, Michael IV died from gangrene after suffering multiple seizures. But he died a hero who returned from a campaign in Bulgaria. It was bittersweet for the emperor. At least he knew he died a hero. Unfortunately, he lived a total screw-up. The rightful successors to the Macedonian dynasty, the three daughters of Constantine VIII, were all under house arrest of some kind. Eudokia was in a convent. Zoe was under house arrest in the palace woman's quarters. And Theodora was banished to a monastery. And now Michael V, nephew to Michael IV, and John Orphanotrophus, was the new emperor. We talked about the last episode being the beginning of the downfall of the Byzantine Empire. Well, this guy is going to speed up the process. Was Michael V a psychopath? Maybe. His uncle John got him the position in the first place, and ironically... It was John whom Michael V first turned on. Michael wanted to rule alone, and in his eyes his uncle had too much influence in the royal palace. So the very first thing he did was banish his uncle to a monastery. This seems almost fitting considering all the people John had banished because he thought they were threats to his brother's reign. Second, Michael summoned all the people his uncle had banished back to the service of the empire. This included General George Maniakis, the guy who nearly captured Sicily. His orders were to recapture the land in Italy taken by the Normans. The next power move made by Michael V came on April 19, 1042 CE. That is when he banished his adopted mother, Empress Zoe, to the island of Principo. This made him the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. But by doing so, he angered the entire population of Constantinople. Now, it's hard to understand what might have been going through his head at the time. Maybe he thought he was the rightful ruler. Maybe he thought he could get away with it because he was young and reckless. Whatever the reason, he created an uproar. The people loved the Macedonian dynasty. They had brought the empire through the Byzantine Golden Age, and now Michael was exiling their heirs. You know, it would have been one thing if the economy and the state of the empire were going great, but it wasn't. Things were going from bad to worse, and now he threw gasoline on the fire. The arrogance of this man is unbelievable, as he had the nerve to announce this move in public and the people lost their minds. Thousands of people rioted and surrounded the palace. It got so bad that Michael was forced to recall his adoptive mother to the capital and show her off to the people in the Hippodrome. But this wasn't enough. 
the traitor was still on the throne. The mob grew in numbers, and as they grew larger, they grew more rash. Soon the imperial guards were forced to go outside and crush the protesters. But the mob broke through and entered the royal palace. The mob trashed the place. Jewels and decor were stripped and stolen. The tax sheets were shredded, and eventually this led to a bloody encounter with the guards, which saw thousands of people on both sides stabbed to death and hacked to pieces. Blood flowed on the stones surrounding the palace. On April 21st, 1042, Empress Theodora was broken out of her nunnery, against her will, and was declared the Empress of the Roman Empire. There are many who claim this period was terribly misogynistic, which goes to show just how much the people hated Michael V, to the point where they would rather have a woman rule the empire on her own than have this madman lunatic govern over them. There was no getting away from the mob. The young emperor ran for his very life. He made it past the mob and into a monastery where he claimed sanctuary. I can't help but think of all those stories where thieves and refugees ran to the church for sanctuary and soldiers let them stay in there because it was a holy place. Well, that didn't happen this time. They dragged him out kicking and screaming. Michael was pinned down by soldiers and iron rods were heated up in the fires. He was then blinded in both eyes. And to make it worse, it is said that they castrated him as well. Most likely he was not castrated in a compassionate manner. Blinded and mutilated, the young emperor was thrown into a monastery where he screamed all day and cried all night in agony. On August 24, 1042, Michael V died of his wounds. He was in office for a total of four months. So now the throne was once again empty. The people demanded the return of the great Macedonian princesses, Zoe and Theodora. Now believe it or not, Zoe wanted to rule on her own, and Theodora didn't want to rule at all. But the Senate and a delegation objected to this. They went to the convent where Theodora was living quietly and peacefully and forced her to return to the imperial palace, where she was installed as co-emperor along with her sister Zoe. This is an amazing turn of events, because less than 250 years before, the empire had its first sole-ruling female empress, and everyone fought against the idea of a woman ruling the empire. Now we have the people demanding that not one, but two women rule over the empire. It's important to note that what the people wanted was peace and stability, and a return to the greatness of the Macedonian dynasty. There is no doubt that educated women from the palace knew about Empress Irene and her ultimate demise, so they would have feared the same fate as her. They knew they needed a male heir to inherit the throne, and the only way to get a male heir would be to marry someone. The first two months went seemingly well. Zoe was, by right of her age, the senior empress. 
but they attended the Senate hearings together and conducted business together. They cared about the empire, or at least the stability of the empire. Together they tried to undo the terrible works of the previous three emperors. Zoe was the senior of the two, but Theodora was gaining influence over the people, and factions started to form around both empresses. It could be that Zoe was jealous of Theodora and wanted to put a stop to her rise in power and influence, because only two months after ruling jointly, Zoe sought out a new husband. This would cut off Theodora from rising any further. It must have been very stressful for both sisters, as the first one to marry could mean the exiling of the other. Three times now, the last marriage had ended with the empresses being banished from their home. It wasn't just the court that had to be satisfied. It was the citizens of Constantinople. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. When Zoe sat down and decided to marry someone, it's unlikely that she had a binder of suitable husbands. But it does kind of seem that way. But it is likely that she consulted with close advisors on who would most suitable for the job. Her first choice for the role of husband was a man named Constantine. He was the man her father tried to set her up with when he was still emperor. They actually met and tried to come to an agreement, but his attitude was not charming, to say the least. He actually came off as aggressive and claimed that had she married him in the first place, the empire wouldn't be in this mess. Not a great way to win over your date. Maybe she was turned off by his arrogance. Or maybe she was turned off by the fact that he was right and the empire would have been better off if they had married long ago. But she didn't want to be reminded of that every day and night. Or maybe, just maybe... His arrogance was a red flag, and this man would just exile her the moment he was in power, like the last three emperors. Either way, it was a no to Constantine. The second man she interviewed for the position of husband and emperor was Constantine. Yes, another one. This man seemed fit for the job. In fact, Zoe used to cheat on her husband Romanus with this Constantine. This was the best fit. There was only one problem. Constantine had a wife. But that didn't seem to bother Zoe or Constantine. Just as the custom was back then, Constantine approached his wife and told her that she had to go live in a convent for the rest of her life, say goodbye to all her friends and family, and live in the shadows while her husband got to rise to the position of emperor and sleep with his ex. As you can imagine, she took it very well. Did she slap in the face and say, over my dead body? Nope. She did what many other women would probably do in the same situation. She poisoned her husband before the wedding. So that marriage didn't work out either. 
Finally, Zoe set her eyes on a man named, can you guess, Constantine. There were a lot of people named Constantine in Constantinople. Constantine Matamakos was already famous in the imperial court and made his rise to fame under Basil II and Constantine VIII. It is also very likely that Zoe had a previous love affair with him. When Zoe proposed to him, there were legal complications. The church did not like officiating marriages between people who had been married multiple times in the past. So Patriarch Alexios refused to conduct the ceremony. Leaving the job to a low-level priest who wasn't worried about his reputation. On June the 11th, 1042, Empress Zoe married Constantine Manomachos, making him Constantine the Ninth. This marriage bumped Theodora back in line. She was still a co-empress, but now there were two chairs in front of hers. Now, if you think we're being figurative when we say that, we are not. The way the court worked was the thrones were set up in order. Zoe had her throne placed slightly before Theodora's, and now that Constantine IX was emperor, the chairs placed him at the front, Zoe in the middle, and Theodora at the back. We mentioned in our last episode that Zoe was the beautiful one in the family. Not that Theodora wasn't pretty, but Zoe was spectacular. She was hot, and everyone knew she was hot. And one thing that hot women hate is aging. According to Michael Sellos, the chronicler, she did everything to preserve her beauty. She had face creams made to keep her skin smooth and fresh, and I doubt they had spin class or CrossFit back then, but I wouldn't be surprised if she exercised to stay in shape. Or maybe she just abstained from eating foods that made one fat. Michael Sellos states that she remained extremely beautiful well into her 60s. With Zoe and Constantine married, and previously lovers, you might think that they were a perfect couple. But that is not quite the truth. Constantine was at least 20 years younger than Zoe, and he had a girlfriend when she proposed to him. This marriage was obviously a political one, and it seems that Zoe knew that. But what makes this weird is that Constantine brought his girlfriend with him to the palace. And not in a subtle way, either. He was very open about it. How open was he? Well, let's just say that he flaunted her in public. Even brought her into the court and gave her an imperial title. And to make it even weirder, she had a throne placed up with Theodora, Zoe, and Constantine. So the thrones went as follows. Constantine at the front, then Zoe, then Theodora, and at the back, Maria Scleriana. She was even given the title of Empress. Did she share a bed with Constantine and Zoe? Who knows? But Zoe didn't seem to mind. All that mattered was there was an emperor and the throne was secure. But the people didn't like this one bit. It was kind of a slap in the face to the church, and the people thought this was a possible attempt at a coup. 
Rumors started to spread that Constantine was planning on murdering Zoe and Theodora to claim the throne as his own and instate Maria as the true empress. One day, while Constantine was in the middle of an imperial procession in the streets, a mob formed, turned into a riot, and then attacked Constantine the Ninth. The mob came very close to actually harming the emperor. The imperial guard fought their way back to the royal palace, where the mob surrounded the building. As the mob grew bigger and more violent, Zoe and Theodora walked out onto the balcony and called out to the people. They reassured everyone that they were safe and that Constantine wasn't going to murder them and remove them from power. Now, even if Constantine was planning on making a move, at that moment, he must have realized just how foolish it would be to kill the princesses. For the next two years... Empress Zoe and Theodora remained safe in the palace. All the while, Emperor Constantine IX ruled with his mistress. But the empire was not what it had once been. The cracks were starting to form. Normans in Italy were causing trouble. Pechenegh tribes in the north were raiding Bulgaria. In the east, the caliphate was prodding and probing and a new tribe of Turkic horse riders were gaining ground. Not to mention, the Rus attacked again, and again were set on fire with Greek flames. But the empire held its own. One factor of Constantine IX's rule that had grave consequences for the empire was his cut in military spending, which ultimately weakened the empire. In 1045, Constantine made a move against Armenia, seizing the kingdom for the Roman Empire. This campaign did not come out from anywhere, for an agreement had been made under Basil II that the kingdom could remain under the Armenian king's control as long as he lived. But as soon as he died, the Roman Empire would gain the kingdom as a new province. But the Armenian prince refused to honor this old agreement and held on to power, triggering a military response from Constantine IX. Had Constantine IX known what was lying on the border of Armenia, he might have never made such a move. Lying just beyond the border of Armenia was a new tribe of Turkic warriors. This wasn't the Khazars, and it wasn't the Pechenegs. It was a new Turkic tribe, one that had converted to Islam, Sunni Islam. They were called the Seljuk Turks. By seizing the Armenian kingdom and absorbing the buffer state for themselves, they made their border the front line for invasion. Historians from only 20 or 30 years later called this the moment the empire lost its grip on the region. But we, as armchair historians from the future, call it the beginning of the end. But Constantine didn't know that at the time. In fact, no one knew what was coming. Instead, Constantine focused his efforts on bringing the Armenian church under Byzantine rule. Can you believe that? Christians attacking Christians. In 1047, the Pechenegs crossed the Danube River and raided Roman Bulgaria. Constantine never mustered up a massive army like his predecessors, nor did he lead the campaign personally. Instead, 
he paid them off and even allowed some of them to settle in the Balkans. This further weakened the imperial grip on their European holdings. Basil II was able to lead his troops in battle because his brother was guarding the throne for him. And Michael IV was able to lead his troops into battle because he knew he was dying and had nothing else to lose. But Constantine had very little control over the capital. If he left, then anyone could take his power. So he stayed in Constantinople and resorted to bribes and other petty maneuvers. As time went on, the next generation of Pechenegs, Normans, Turks, and Arabs came to age. And they did not have a memory of the Bulgar slayer. They saw the empire as a dying old man. And so they became emboldened. In 1050, while Empress Zoe was at the ripe age of 72, she tragically passed away, leaving Constantine IX as the emperor. Now we must diverge from imperial politics and explain what was happening on the religious front. The emperors were the rulers of the empire, but the patriarch was the ruler of the faith. And as everyone who knows history can tell you, in 1054, there was a schism between the East and West churches. So let's explain exactly how that happened. At this point in time, the Christian church was unified, at least on paper. But that last shred of legal unity was about to go up in flames. For centuries, the Pope in Rome had to be approved by the emperor in Constantinople specifically while Rome was in the Byzantine control. But lately, the Byzantines had become less and less powerful, and the Pope in Rome had become more and more isolated. When the Franks became Catholic, they swore to protect the Pope, which was more than the Byzantines could offer. And when Charlemagne was crowned emperor, it took political power away from the East and gave it to the West. Politically, Geographically, the Pope was separated from the Roman Empire. Not only were they separated geographically, but there was a cultural and linguistic divide. The Catholics in the West continued to speak Latin, while the Roman, or Byzantine Empire in the East, spoke Greek. When Otto I became the first Holy Roman Emperor, it signaled that the East and West were two separate and equal entities. From the Byzantine perspective, the Pope was just another patriarch, and at one time, there were many patriarchs, or bishops, and they were located all over the Christian world, including Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Rome, and Constantinople. As the Arab conquests conquered all these lands, the patriarchs from most of these cities fell into enemy hands. And the Pope was seen as the same, a patriarch that fell out of the imperial sphere of influence. The Syrian patriarch still looked after its church, and so did the Coptic Pope in Alexandria, and so did the Pope in Rome. But from the Catholic perspective, they were on their own. They were the only ones left, and they were on top. But... If you were in Constantinople at the time, you would look at the Pope in Rome as just another bishop. There is another distinction between the two churches, and it may be a language barrier. 
but its root is in the philosophical meaning of the phrase, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Western Church will claim this quote to be the Word of God, but the Eastern Church will say, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and they completely leave out the phrase, and the Son. Now this seems like a very small distinction, but to the Orthodox Christians at the time, this was a big deal. But if you were to look at this from the West's perspective, they had to fight against a completely different form of Christianity that wasn't present in the East. We are referring to Arianism. The Pope was surrounded by German Christians who threatened the Pope at all times. And the Arians had a different view of Christ than the Pope. So this battle of theology was always at the Pope's front, whereas this was never an issue for the Byzantines. This theological perspective might seem very minute to us, but for the Pope, it was a can of worms that could reignite the Arian Christians and bring down everything around him. It's crazy to think that this one tiny phrase made a difference. But to the Pope... It was a dangerous phrase that could ignite an Arian rebellion that would unseat him from power. The Eastern Church noticed that the Pope in the West was adding this little text, which to them seemed like the Pope was deviating from the Nicene Creed. But for the West, they were just making it crystal clear so that the Arians didn't get any funny ideas. This little addition and the sun, was enough to solidify the West against Arianism, and consequently break apart from the Eastern Orthodox. And by making this decision, without consulting the Patriarch of Constantinople, they were basically making their own ecumenical council. In the eyes of the Patriarch, this was insubordination. They didn't even include the East in their decision. It was a slap in the face of the patriarch. This controversy is all about authority and the ability to make theological decisions without consulting each other. Fun fact, in 2004, the patriarch of Constantinople and Pope Paul John II presented a mass together and they recited together, in Greek, the Holy Scripture and the Pope left out, and the Son. It was spoken in Greek, so not many people noticed, but it was the first time in over a thousand years that the two bishops got together and agreed on the phrase. Now that we have given the context of the schism, you might be asking yourself, why didn't the schism happen much earlier? Why did it take until 1054? Well, this is where cool heads did not prevail. There was a man named Humbert, who was the right-hand man of the Pope. He happened to have read a letter by the Greek Orthodox, or the Byzantine Church, who criticized the use of unleavened bread used in the Eucharist. The letter claimed the Western Church, or Roman Catholics, were using a Judaism form of worship in their service. Humbert took this Greek letter, translated it, and saw the trash the Eastern Church was saying about the Western Church, and like a girl in high school, ran with this letter to the Pope, 
and said, Look what the Greeks are saying about you. What are you going to do? The Pope had to act. His reputation was on the line. So he wrote an angry letter, our equivalent to an angry text, and addressed it to the Patriarch in Constantinople. This resulted in a heated disagreement between the two bishops, Patriarch and Pope, and Humbert was sent to Constantinople to smooth out the relations. It just so happens that at the time, both the Pope and the Patriarch were two egomaniacs that couldn't give an inch, and their personal ego and ambitions resulted in a heated exchange. The Patriarch decided that the best course of action was to force the representative from Rome, Humbert, to wait and sit for several weeks before even meeting with him. This was a power move, to say the least. How disrespectful is that? You travel for weeks, maybe months, to meet the patriarch, and when you finally get to the secretary's office, the boss makes you wait in the lobby for two weeks. That was purposefully insulting. When Humbert finally met with the patriarch, it broke down into a shouting match. What started as a simple letter about unleavened bread and three extra words devolved into a challenge of authority. Humbert came to Constantinople to assert the authority of the Pope, and the Patriarch responded by asserting his authority by making the representative of the Pope wait for weeks before seeing him. The result was, on Easter Sunday, 1054, Humbert walked into the Hagia Sophia in the middle of the most important service of the Church, and announced the excommunication of the Patriarch for his insolence. In reaction to the Pope's outlandish actions, the Patriarch excommunicated the Pope. And just like that, two men, with extreme egos and unwillingness to come to terms with each other, broke the Christian faith in two. But to be honest, this schism was already drawn up on paper. It just took these two men to sign the dotted line. At the time, most people probably thought this was a feud between bishops. Who knew it was going to last a thousand years? But what this really did was tear the last tiny thread of a giant rope that had been ripping apart for centuries. On June 11th, 1055, Constantine IX died. At this time, Theodora had left the imperial palace. She was happy with her quiet life in the convent before she was forced to become co-empress with Zoe. And once Zoe married Constantine, it seemed she returned to that quiet and peaceful life. Once again, her quiet solitude was interrupted. Maybe she woke up one morning to the knocking on her door and was greeted by the court officials. Or maybe she was enjoying her prayer when an official brought her a letter. Many in the court were unhappy. Advisors to Constantine IX tried to get him to appoint a duke from Bulgaria as the next emperor, but Theodora wasn't going to let that happen. I like to think that when she returned, the entire court was shocked as she kicked open the doors and told the court, I am back! But it's more likely that everyone knew she was coming well before she left the convent. 
She came back with a vengeance. She purged the court of anyone she thought was misusing their power, and even purged highly qualified commanders with people loyal to her. This rings memories of Irene's reign from 800 CE. She personally presided over the Senate and acted in ways that offended the church and other administrators. Eventually, the patriarch demanded that she marry and find a new suitor to take over as the emperor. Of course, she refused to do such a thing. She refused to get married, and she refused to name an heir. Unfortunately for Theodora, she came down with an intestinal infection and grew gravely ill. On August 31st, 1056 CE, she lay dying on her bed, and the patriarch came to her side and asked her to proclaim an heir. He presented the man, Michael Bringas, and asked her to proclaim him her successor. According to Michael Sellas, the historian at the time, she barely nodded, and the patriarch took that as an agreement. She died only a few hours later. And so, after the death of Theodora, the last of the Macedonians who ruled over the Roman Empire for 189 years, Michael VI was proclaimed Emperor of the Roman Empire. This not only ends the line of the great Macedonians, but ends the rule of the two empresses. The empire had cracks to its very core, and everything that Basil II had built and fought for was finally about to come crashing down. The Byzantine Golden Age was gone. So after this episode about the two empresses, uh, does it remind you anything of Irene's rule from the beginning of season two? Well, Irene was uh, empress, and uh, they wanted to get rid of her, and she was eventually thrown over by Nicephorus and put into a convent. She didn't want to go to a convent. And then, of course, Theodora wanted to stay in the convent, but she was dragged out kicking and screaming to become the empress. So we have a convent, we have kicking and screaming. <laughs> Slightly different, but two strong-headed women. Yeah, pretty wild. I like to think of um, Theodora as Irene in reverse. Yeah. One started in the palace, dragged to a convent. The other one started in the convent, dragged to the palace. <laughs> they both died without heirs. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, Irene had an heir. No, Irene killed her heir, Constantine. <laughs> she blinded him. <laughs> Another goddamn Constantine. I know. Oh, yeah. Why would you say that? But it's recording right now. Oh. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.